Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. And the next few weeks, folks, we have a ton of podcasts that I've recorded that will be coming out. So make sure to subscribe wherever you might be. And before we get into today's guest, let's thank our sponsor, which is Bluehost. All the show notes for this show can be found at RyanRaySenior.com. That's RyanRaySR.com. I use Bluehost to host my website, and you should too. So go to RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting, RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting to get your website up. And if you do, send me your link with a receipt that you purchased through my link, and I will give you a free plug on this podcast. Okay, now let's get into our guest, who is Michael Pack, who is a writer, producer, director, is the president of Manifold Productions, an independent film and television production company that was founded in 1977. Mr. Pack has written, directed, and produced numerous award-winning nationally broadcast documentaries, as well as corporate and educational films. His most recent credits include Created Equal, Clarence Thomas, in his own words, Rick Over, The Birth of Nuclear Power, narrated by Joan Allen, Rediscovering Alexander Hamilton, and many, many more. Um, we're obviously having him on today to talk about the book and the documentary Created Equal by Clarence Thomas. You can find all of that on Amazon, which we'll link to in the show notes, which is where? At RyanRaySenior.com. So be sure to check that out. Without further ado, here's my interview with Michael Pack. Well, Michael, it is great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the show. Okay, so Clarence Thomas, why now? Well, for me, it's actually been a process. I mean, now is a perfect time for the book to be out with the Supreme Court under intense you know, scrutiny and people looking forward expectantly to opinions that are coming out. Justice Thomas released an opinion today on the gun case in New York, and there's likely to be opinions on abortion and other hot button issues. Um, so this is an ideal time for the book to come out. But for me, the process began a few years ago um, when I began the work on the film, the film came before the movie. And the film began because some of Justice Thomas's friends were concerned that his enemies and the left in general were telling his story and misrepresenting his story and misrepresenting his, his life and opinions. And they wanted the truth out there. And they approached me and I didn't know much about Clarence Thomas. I had I remembered his contentious hearings in 1991, of course, but I didn't know that much about him. I met him and all you have to do is meet him once to know he has a great voice, a, he's a great storyteller and he has a great story to tell. And eventually after considering some other options, I settled on the format of him telling his story directly to camera from, the, from his birth to today. He'd be the only interview. There would also be archival footage and recreations and other visuals, but he would be telling his story. It would be his subjective story. And luckily for me, Justice Thomas and Ginny, they're the only interviews in the film, granted me 30 hours of interviews over several months. An unprecedented amount of interview time from any Supreme Court justice ever in history, let alone one who's not that fond of the media. So it was a great privilege he had no editorial control over the film, but the film came out. Mark Paoletta was a tremendous help doing the film, and he's a friend and colleague. And he had the idea that, well, there's a, we did this 30 hours of interviews and only less than two hours are in the film and people wanted to hear more. So he had the brilliant idea really of collecting some of the material that was in the interview and putting it in the book. And that's what the book is. 
and it has just come out this week. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and everywhere else. And you can still stream the movie. I mean, I encourage your listeners to do both. And the, the movie is available on Amazon. And if you go to our website, manifoldproductions.com, you can find out where to stream it. It's on six, seven, eight different streaming services. Okay, we'll be sure to link to all that in the show notes for the listeners. You, you mentioned Justice Thomas, um, you know, his, maybe his view of the media, but I'm curious because he didn't speak from the bench for a long period of time. So uh, is he just a normal, quiet person? Yeah. <laughs> or how, what do we make of that? Well, he actually, he isn't a quiet person. He's a very, loves to chat. He's a voluable person, actually, you know, a, uh, my, I would ask him a question and he would give a very long answer. He had much to say about things. He had a different view of oral argument than was dominant at the time. You know, he believes that the oral argument belongs to the advocates. You know, each of them are given a half hour to make their case. And he thought he, at any time the judge, a justice asks a question or argues among themselves, takes time away from the advocate. And he thought, it's not right to do that. They need the time to make their case. If they're, they're often interrupted 30 seconds in, and he did not think that was right. So he, and he didn't like the sort of free-for-all that developed. So he did not speak, but it's actually changed a little with COVID when it was all been virtual and the oral arguments went kind of in order. And in, in that orderly process, he was more comfortable. It was more what he thought oral, oral argument should be. And he spoke. But I, I think it's worth that he, he points it, he explains all this in the book and the film. And he points out, I think what is really more important and, and many of us are unaware of this is, you know, we think of the Supreme Court in the mode of to kill a mockingbird or, you know, witness for the prosecution or some other, or Perry Mason, but it, it's not like that. It's not a lower court trial before a jury. It's an appeals court. And most of the work is done on paper the people send in huge briefs and many, many amicus briefs along with it. And there are hundreds of pages. And those, so the oral argument is just a chance for the advocates to add to what they've already put in writing. And the work of the court is writing the opinions and arguing about them and talking, you know, compromising and trying to work out language between themselves. And from the day he came on the court, Clarence Thomas was a leader in that area. He has written more opinions than any other Supreme Court justice. And each year it's close to double the amount of opinions the nearest justice has written. So he's very active in the things that to him matter, but maybe they're the less visible aspect of the court. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So let's go back through his history because he kind mm -hmm. of was going one way and then decided that's not the way to go. And mm -hmm. um on some level, unpack that. And then how you think personally that might impact how he rules from the bench today? Well, the, both the film and the book tell his life story chronologically. And he has extremely dramatic life story, a great boon to filmmakers and writers of books. You know, and you were right. He, he went through some twists and turns. He was, he was born in Pinpoint, Georgia in 19... Uh, 48. Today is his birthday, actually. He's 74. And he, he first was in a Gullah-speaking area, so English wasn't his first language. His father left before he could remember. His mother took him to Savannah, where he suffered dire poverty until she brought him to her father, his grandfather, to raise Justice Thomas and his brother. And 
his grandfather turned his life around. His grandfather gave him discipline, hard work, sent him to parochial school, then segregated an all-Black parochial school run by Irish nuns who also gave him discipline, hard work, a, 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 a rigorous curriculum. And he was going along that path. And in fact, he studied to be, he wanted to be a priest and he entered the seminary, which not everybody knows about him. And it was only in the late 60s when he started to experience some racism, even in the seminary, that he changed what, what you alluded to. He became a radical. He rejected his grandfather's values. Uh, he, had, he was watching TV the day Martin Luther King Jr. was shot in the seminary in a white seminary and said, I hope that SOB dies. And that was it for Justice Thomas. He thought the church wasn't doing enough. He didn't want any part of it anymore. Race and racism explained everything. He became, as he said, an angry black man. He supported the, the people, radicals, the more radical, the better, as he says. And uh, he went to Holy Cross where he got a full scholarship and he led the, the formation of Black Student Union. It was only by watching the failure of those policies and thinking it through that he finally came back to his grandfather's values and the, the values of the nuns, the values he was raised in. So it's a really dramatic story and he does a beautiful job telling it. Yeah, I was not aware that he went to seminary either until this came out. I was kind of, was kind of caught off guard by that. I just um, was, was, was a fact that I wasn't aware of. And, and, and so you kind of have this um, kind of a, almost a full circle story, right? And from a couple of yeah. different ways, in which I'm sure from a filmmaker standpoint, makes it great to tell. It's great. It's great to tell. It's very dramatic. It's got we think it's gone one way and there's another twist and a turn. And I didn't know these things either. I mean, and I don't think most of the public did. I mean, you didn't know it. I didn't know it. I mean, clearly followers of the Supreme Court know it, but not the general public. And so it was it has been great. And, um, you know, the film was very successful for that reason. It was released in 110 movie theaters, a lot for a documentary before COVID shut it down. It was nationally broadcast on PBS, and now it's streaming, you know, in many, many places. And it was the success of the film that motivated us to do the book. Um, but I, I do think to go to your earlier question, having gone through these changes and thought his way back to his principles after having rejected them, gives him this sort of knowledge of where they came from, and it makes him a staunch principled person, hard to shake. You know, he's gone through it all before, he's seen it all before, he knows what he thinks and believes. And I think that's a clue to what he's going to do. I mean, I think you know what he's going to do mm -hmm. if you understand his principles. And we call the film and the book Created Equal because his principles are rooted in the Declaration and the Constitution. How much do you think the confirmation hearing in which he says he would, as he said, I'd rather die than, 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 <laughs> go, than, than give up the confirmation hearing, or how he puts it, does that still resonate with him today? Is that something of the past? And how does... How, what does he? What do you think he feels when he sees, like, you know, Justice Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett, the two most recent ones, going through what they go through? Is he sympathetic? Does he go, no, hey, hey Bucko, mm -hmm. this is part of the process? Well, um, yeah, I, I think you know um, when I spoke to him about you know you know in these thirty hours of interviews, a lot of it did deal with his confirmation, and he tells what it was like to experience it, and it's a mm -hmm. pretty moving story. I mean, in the end, and Anita Hill's charges came out, he and Ginny felt, you know, stripped bare and had to fall back on their faith. And it was a horrible moment for him. And 
Um, I think when he told it to me, it was, it came back fully and it was, you could see he was not happy telling the story. And Ginny in her separate interview was, you know, teared up a few times. I mean, I think it's very much real to them still. And, and, and it, you know, it's seared into them in a way. And um, so I don't think it, I don't think they have forgotten or it's just in the past. And it can't be when you go through that. Mark Paletta, my co-author was a young lawyer and helped Justice Thomas during that process. And that bonded them forever as those kinds of experiences do. I, I cannot imagine what he thinks when he sees the, here, for instance, the Kavanaugh hearing. Mm-hmm. The Kavanaugh hearing seemed to follow the Clarence Thomas playbook, you know, just like Clarence Thomas began one way, just when it wasn't going the way the left wanted it, out they, out, they found someone to make these charges. And Justice Kavanaugh had to, had to use everything he had to shoot it down. I, I don't know what Justice Thomas felt or thought. I can't completely imagine, but I would be surprised if he isn't compassionate to, uh, was not compassionate toward Brett Kavanaugh and, and Amy Coney Barrett as well. It's got to be tough um, to sit on a court that is so politicized and to watch the people that at least from the general public's perception, align on the right or align on the left and watch the opposite side attack them. And knowing when you have, there's, you know, none of you, it's like, hey, well, you know, half of us, mm-hmm. our quote camp is attacking this other camp, like all out. And I, I, I just can't imagine working in that environment and just the maturity and patience it must take from all the justices to do that. Well, I will say, you know, Justice uh, Sotomayor made in this last month some very nice comments about Clarence Thomas, about how she respects them and their friends, and that, and this is certainly true. I mean, many have said this, that he knows everybody in the building from the janitors on up, and he knows about their family, he asks about them, he cares about them, he cares about everybody, and and she talked about how civility still reigns in the court, within the nine. But you are right that the partisans of one side or the other take no prisoners. And I think, for instance, the threat on Justice Kavanaugh's life is is shocking. And the leaking of Samuel Alito's opinion, you know, against all the rules of the court, and I think against the law, is further shocking. And 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 those things may really erode the court in the future. And that's that's a tragic loss for this country. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned today we're recording. This is June 23rd. Um, is, is Clarence Thomas's birthday, 74th birthday, you said. Mm. Um, there's a larger discussion, it seems now, especially uh, President Trump seemed to bring this to the forefront for some reason, uh, about age limits. That's been mm. Congress and the Oval Office and, of course, in the Supreme Court. Um, you've studied the man. You, you know this man. Obviously, he's 74. What are your thoughts on things like that for age limits as society as we deal with these things? Because obviously you, you hold him in high regard. Um, so should we, how do we, how do we think about age limits as it pertains to the Supreme court? It's very hard because these things are very political. I mean, the left only considers age limits when they're going to age limit people on the right. And no doubt people on the right would be much more amenable to age limits if the Supreme court were dominated by eight old uh, liberals. So it's hard to separate the merits of those arguments from their political use. Um, I am very reluctant, personally, this is just my own view, to tamper with the Constitution. The Constitution 
pointedly did not set age limits. You know, Clarence Thomas, when he took this, when he, you know, was confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, said it's a job for life, and that's how I'm treating it. So I, that is how the Constitution sets it up. Um, I'm much, I, I, so I'm not sure. I'm reluctant to play around with that. I think Clarence Thomas is extremely active. His, 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 you know, he's, he's as, as acute mentally as he ever was, maybe more so with all these years of experience. I don't know age limits. I don't know who's going to set them, how we're going to work that out. I mean, it's, it, you would need to amend the constitution, a very tricky thing to do. Yeah. And, and just to your point on that, I think that people would love to be able to invest in Berkshire Hathaway despite the age of those gentlemen. Yeah, good point. <laughs> so, good point. So, but there's plenty of other 55, 45, 35-year-olds we wouldn't give a dollar to. And so it, it is a case-by-case thing, but it is something that, that society's seeming to grapple with. And, and I'm, I'm a bit concerned that it's very much prisoner of the moment argument compared to what is general wisdom on this say. Um, how do you think Clarence Thomas um, wants to be viewed 100 years from now? Well, he says he doesn't think about his legacy, but, but we end the film and the book with some consideration of his legacy. He says he just tries to do his job as a judge or a justice in this case, and, and that is not to consider what he thinks of, of the issue involved, whether it's abortion or gun rights, but think about whether it's constitutional or not, whether it, how it comports with the original intentions of the founders in the case of the constitution or the writers of the amendment or, or in the case of the amendments. I think he wants to be remembered as somebody who lived up to his duty and did it. I mean, he, he, he does that to honor his grandfather and the nuns who taught him. He has a bust of his grandfather in his office and he looks at it every day. I think his grandfather told him to do his duty and he wants to be remembered as somebody who did in the service of this country. It's, it sounds like a simple thing but it is not a simple thing. And we are losing our connection to the founding principles. And I think if Justice Thomas and the Supreme Court can be a, a, a anchor preserving them, that is a great legacy. Yeah, it, it, that's another interesting debate that, that you see as well. I saw uh, with some of the, the opinions coming out today, uh, people arguing about, oh, this is why you can't be an originalist. And I'm like, well, uh, okay, we can just, just half a second here. If we're not originalist, uh, then what are we? Because that becomes mm. an ambiguous term that, that no one can actually define. It's a prisoner of the moment again. And so um, whether, if you don't like the originalist argument, so be it, but, but there is no actual definition for what you are now. That, that becomes a, a very much a, a tricky, slippery slope. Well, that's right. If you're not an originalist, then you're just pushing whatever your political view is. And the Supreme Court is just another political body, just like Congress. But we don't need another one. We have Congress. And Clarence Thomas feels the job of judges is not to make law, but to interpret it, to be, to judge it. It's the business of Congress to make law. I mean, the separation of powers is very important. Different branches have different authorities and, and limits and, and there are checks and balances between them. If you start eroding that, you know, what is left, what will preserve our rights? And I, I think, I, I agree with you. If we're not, if you're not originalist, then you're just another political hack really you know even if you're a political hack on my side <laughs> yeah yeah no matter what side you're on exactly okay so a couple last questions here for you we'll kind of make these a little bit more rabbit style where would you <laughs> rank justice thomas in the judges uh, in, in the supreme court justices overall 
I'm not an expert in the Supreme Court, but I rank him very high. I mean, I think he's a, a great judge, justice, and his time isn't over. I mean, this is, you know, in some ways, this is his moment. I mean, as you say, he came out with an opinion today on gun rights, and we're waiting for more opinions. I, I think, you know, we don't even know what his legacy is and where he ranks, but I think it'll be high. If you had, this is your opinion, if you had to okay. guess, what type of cases does he like or wish he could rule on more regularly? Well, you know, the Supreme Court, I'm not a Supreme Court watcher. There are many professional Supreme Court watchers. My, my co-writer, Mark, is not quite a Supreme Court watcher. He has another practice, but he's more that. And the Supreme Court judges, justices are always sending signals to, mm -hmm. as to what kind of cases they want by their opinions on the cases before them. People are pretty sensitive at reading those opinions, at reading those hints. And I, I think what they do is they use these cases to refine principles and things they've gone over. I think one area that's big that I, I believe from my non-lawyer perspective, Justice Thomas and others want to refine their thinking is on these administrative um, state questions. You know, what do you do about federal agencies that are essentially making most of the rules and laws that govern our lives? I mean, they're not accountable. Right. They've seized executive, legislative, judicial authority. You know, what is their status? What should be their proper status? And I think that they are anxious to look at that. And I hope they do. I think that is a very important area. Okay, you spent 30 hours with him. You mentioned <laughs> you mentioned the seminary, which I think most people don't know. You mentioned that he knows everyone in the Supreme Court's office. Give me one other thing that maybe you learned that was um, that people couldn't have learned unless they spent the time with him that you did. I think the thing, the thing that I got most from my time with him was this sense of his resilience in the face of struggles and difficulties and his unwillingness to define himself as a victim in spite of all the temptations to the contrary. And you see those temptations in the film. I think I tried to convey that in the film and Mark and I tried to convey it in the book. I mean, so if you don't have to spend 30 hours with him, you could watch the film and read the book, but it's that emotional sense of his, his commitment to these things, not so much a thing you didn't know, like the seminary, but this sense of what, how he, the, the why and how he adheres to his principles and his unwillingness to define himself as a victim. Okay, uh, we're gonna let you go with this. Do you have, we're gonna send the people to wherever you wanna send them to and do you have <laughs> any upcoming projects that you wanna promote or go ahead and get out there to the world? Well, we are, are fortunate. We've gotten a grant to do a bunch of new documentaries and we are also doing, starting an incubator to train young right of center documentary filmmakers. I think there are very, there are way too few. And we wanna make, we make documentaries that appeal to everybody, including the center. Our documentaries have all been on PBS, not generally considered a right wing media outlet. And we wanna train other documentary producers who are right of center to make stories that can appeal to a broad swatch of America. So we are starting an incubator and I hope, uh, your listeners and others come forward to help. I think that's an important project. And our other films, you know, cover the gamut that are coming out. You should watch them closely. If you go to our website, you know, they will be there. And we have 15 other films that are out there too, all okay. worth seeing. And that's manifoldproductions.com, correct? Exactly. Okay, we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll link to the book, we'll link to the trailer, we'll link to everything so people can go check that out. Uh, thank you so much for the time today and the book and the film. I uh, hope everyone enjoys it. Any final words from you, sir? I, I just think we should all 
you know, pray for the Supreme Court and hope for good outcomes in the next few weeks. Okay. With that, listeners, we'll be back very soon.